Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to look at your word. We ask that you show us what you'd have us to see from this and that we will follow your your people through their wanderings and the Moses' exhortation. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1. Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke unto me. And we compassed Mount Seir many days. And the Lord spoke unto me, saying, You have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn northward. And command you the people, saying, We are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take you good heed unto yourself thereof. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land. No, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. You shall buy meat of them for money you sh- that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you with all the works of your hand. He, walk- he knows you're walking through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. All right, we'll stop there for a moment. Uh, the stories we're looking at are basically the end of Numbers. Uh, numbers 20 and 21 is where we just got done studying it. So as we're going into Deuteronomy, all of these first couple chapters should sound very familiar. So they were wandering in the, in the wilderness, and he said, by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord said, you've compassed Mount Seir long enough. <laughs> And Mount Seir is a, is a mountain just south of the Dead Sea, in the wilderness part of the, of the, of the uh, wilderness there. And uh, I think we still have maps, if you guys have those maps. I didn't print any out for today. I do, but I don't know what I did with it. Yeah. I meant to print one out and forgot about it. But, just south, of, just south of the Dead Sea is Mount Seir, and God had them circle it, and he says, for many days. And when you think about the wandering in the wilderness, they wandered for 38 years, they've wandered in the wilderness. One of those. Oops. So we see this, and the reason they wandered, they talked about before. They had rejected going into the Promised Land. And said, no, we're not going to go into the promised land. God, you just want to kill us and our children. After God had taken and got, you know, moved him out of Egypt, brought him through to Mount Sinai, gave him water, gave him manna, they get to the promised land and say, we're not going in because God just wants to kill us. And they wandered for 38 years, just wandering around in circles, in circles in the wilderness. I thought it was 40 years. Well, 40 years total. You had a year between Egypt and leaving Sinai, and we're in the last year as they're getting ready to go into the Promised Land. So total of 40 years between the time they left Egypt and the time they went in. And it says you've, you've, you've compassed this land long enough. Go north. Go north from, that, from the Mount Seir. And it says you're to pass the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau. Okay, who's Esau? Does anybody remember who Esau is? Jacob's twin brother. Isaac. Esau, God's saying, you're not going to get any of Esau's land at all. 
And they love the way it says, not even a foot breadth, not even, not even the length of a foot of his land are you getting. He says, you are to pass by, and I, and I, and I kind of like this word, you're, you're, then I'm gonna, they're going to be afraid of you. You are not to meddle with them. And that means to excite or engage in strife. So they're not to do anything to make them angry. And God says very clearly, you're to buy your food. You're to buy your water. You're, and if you remember in, in Numbers, Moses said, we will go through your land. We will stay on the roads. And we will buy. We will pay for everything we eat and drink. And they're going to let them go through. And so... And you know, I love this. He says, the Lord your God has blessed you in all the works of your hand. He knows you're walking through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we think about this. When they left Egypt, they spoiled Egypt. They took the gold and jewels and silver and everything out of Egypt. They used a lot of it to build the, ta the, the tabernacle. And it seems like they're selling things as they go along because God says he's blessed all their works. Because you've got to have something to be able to pay for this food. It could be barter. It could be just that God has blessed them with animals. And, and we know they have a lot of animals because we've seen that. And, but, huh? Am I wrong? Have we discussed that? Yes, this was in Numbers 21. We're reviewing. This is Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law and the rules. It's going to be very familiar. Deuteronomy is going to be extremely familiar. And then they passed through and they turned, they turned, it says in the end of verse 8, and passed by the way of the wilderness to Moab. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give you the land their land for a possession because I gave it I have given R unto the children of Lot as a for a possession and the Emens dwell therein in times past and the peop a people great and many and tall as the Anakims which also were accounted giants as the Anakims but the Moabites called them Emens the Horims also dwelt in Seir before and the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them before them and dwelt in their stead as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord had given him. So he says, you're not going to do anything to the Moabites. <laughs> because they're your, they're your family. Basically saying, these are family. Now they're somewhat distant family in most cases, but they are family. We've got Esau's family, uh, which was Jacob's brother <laughs> from Isaac. <laughs> and we have... Lot's children, and Lot's children came from being Lot's ne uh, Abraham's nephew. And after the Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, he went up in the mountains and basically was not coming down. And his daughters decided that they were going to have incest, and and they were the ones that helped create the Moabites. So the Moabites? they're they're the family that came from Lot. The and yeah. So we have these families, and God says, you're not getting any of their land because they're family. And so God says, I have given them their land. And so we look at this, and it says the, the Moabites defeated the Emens, which he goes into this long explanation to the fact that 
they were people great and many and tall. And basically he's saying that they were giants. They were big and tall. Now I don't know how tall tall was because he doesn't tell us, but they were, they were accounted as the Anakites, Anakims, which are, were a race of giants as far as their people were concerned. Uh, verse 10. So these people, the, the Moabites, the, the uh, Amorites are conquering over the people that were very large. And it seems that this area had people who were large. We see this all through this story. We're going to see that they, and, and through numbers, we saw that they defeated giants. We know that uh, Goliath was over nine feet tall. And he was from uh, Philistine area, which is next to the, next to the uh, Mediterranean. And they had giants in, in Philistia. The Anakins dwelt in the promised land, in the southern part of the promised lands, land. And if you remember, when the spies went in, they said, the people are giants. They're, they're bigger than us. They, you know, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. You know, they, they were a little paranoid, I think. I don't think the giants were quite that tall that they looked like grasshoppers. But they're, in their fear, that's what they saw. So you're probably 8, 9, 10 feet tall, I mean, which are even in our day considered giant. You know, would be considered giants even in our day. Uh, if somebody gets in over eight feet tall, basically they're considered pretty, pretty much close to a giant, and a handful that get bigger are considered giants. So we're seeing in this area very large people. And God said, your, your brethren have managed to kick out these giants in their, their territory, and I'm not giving you their land. Basically saying, you get ready to face your own giants. <laughs> All right? You're going you're gonna to get to go in and face the giants. And this is kind of an interesting thing because we've got a number of giants that keep getting brought up. We've got, we've got Goliath out there, and Goliath had five brothers that, that uh, were giants as well. So we see this large population in that day and age. And uh, here we're saying they've conquered them. They have conquered the giants in their land. And you're not getting any of their, their property. Verse 13, now rise up, said I, and get you over the brook Zered. And we went over the brook Zered. And the space in which we came from Kadesh Bernia until we came over the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generations of men were wasted out from among the host as the Lord swore among us. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. This is something that I had never noticed before, was this little phrase here. Okay, God told them to cross the brook Zered. That gets them out of the Moabite area and is going to take them against the children of Ammon and King Sion. But we look at this. They, they've marched around for 38 years, and this is where we came to 38 years. Uh, one, year in, one year in Sinai, 38 years wandering, and one year on the 
east side of Jordan conquering the, the Amorites. So, but he says, for indeed the hand of the, uh, verse 14, until all the generation of the men of war were wasted out from among the host as the Lord swore them, for the hand, indeed the hand of the Lord was against them. Have you ever wondered how an entire generation of fighting men would die in just 40 years? Everybody from 20 years old and upward was to be dead at the end of the 40 years. There's always somebody in a generation that lives 75, 80, 90. <laughs> Here it gives you the answer. God was against them. He did things to make sure that they died. The entire generation died out in a very, really short period of time. And it said that God was against them and that he wasted them. And wasted is kind of an interesting thing, you know, thought. You know, it meant that God was actively against that generation. And so everybody that was under 20 years old is going to get to go into the promised land. And now they're going to be no more than 60 years old when they come in. And uh, so God says he's, he's taken out the entire generation of men. None of them are left except for Caleb and Joshua. All right, they're going to get to go in. And I love Caleb and Joshua because even when they, even when they go into the promised land, they are characters. <laughs> Yeah, character. You know, Caleb tell, tells uh, Joshua that he wants the hardest. He wants the mountains. He doesn't. He doesn't want the plains where the people are easy. He wants to go for the hardest things to conquer. And so we're going to see these guys are real characters. They they trust God in every part of their life, and they don't back down. So, verse sixteen is so it came to pass when all the men were consumed and dead from among the people that the Lord said unto me. You are to pass over Ar to the coast of Moab this day. And when you come over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give you the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given them unto the children of Lot. So we have Ammon and we have the Moabites that were, uh, excuse me, uh, the Moabites, yes. So God, God says, don't go after the Ammonites because they're family. <laughs> yeah. God is pretty protective of these, of these family members that are out there. And, you know, this is something where a lot of people will talk about how, as Christians, we talk about praying for Israel and pray, you know, for the peace of Israel and that Israel gets their possessions. And God is not done with Israel. Why? Because we as Christians are actually part of the family of Israel. We are engrafted into the root of the olive tree, and the olive tree is Israel. So we are part of Israel as Christians. And God says they're to be protected. And when God says he will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel, that goes on today. When you curse Israel, you will be cursed. When you bless Israel, you will be blessed. And this is something in America. The times we've done things that have hurt Israel have been times where we can look and say bad things have happened to America. When we do things that help Israel, good things happen to America. And it's not because of our great leaders and all of that, other than the fact that they either choose to help or hinder Israel. Yeah. Verse 19, and when you come 
nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them. I will not give them to you, I, for I have given it to the children of Lot for a possession. And verse 20, that also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt there in old times, and the Amor Amorites called them Zamzumims. I, love, I like that word. It sounds so neat. Zamzumims. But in here in giants, it says that they were Rephelin or giants. It's the word for giants. So all these people east of, east of Canaan, east of the Jordan River, have conquered, gi conquered giants and kicked them out of their land. And God says, you're not getting any of their land. And verse 21, And a people great and many, as tall as the Am Amakims, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they succeeded and dwelt in their stead. And to the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, which he destroyed when, when he destroyed the Horims, which were before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stand, even to this day. And the Avim, A Avims, which dwelt in Hazarim, even unto Azra, and the Klafkorims, which were forth from, the, from Kaftor, destroyed them and dwelt in their stead. So here again, we have this whole list of people that they've been destroyed and kicked out of these lands. And God says, all of this Palestinian area that they've conquered belongs to them. So, but he's going to get ready. All right, let's look at verse 24. Rise up, take your journey, and pass over the river of Arnon. And behold, I have given into your hand Sion the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put dread of you and fear of you upon the nations that are under the whole heaven who shall hear a report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So finally, he says, you get to fight. They haven't crossed over the Jordan yet. They're in the north part of the east side of the Jordan. And he says, now you get to fight. You're going to give King Shion of the Amorites, all right? You get to fight him and says, for this day, I will begin to put the dread of you and the fear of you upon the nations that are under the whole heaven. And in Joshua, we will read that the people of Jericho were terrified of the Israelites. Even though the Israelites feared them, the people there feared, feared them because they had beat up everybody they had come across. Uh, God, had destroyed, God had destroyed Egypt. He destroyed every nation that, they, that came against them while they were wandering in the wilderness. And then he destroys the Amorites. And when they went to battle, they did not lose. Except the battle when they decided to disobey God, when God said, you're not going to go into the promised land, and they decided they would go into the promised land in spite of God saying, no, I'm not with you, and they lost tens of thousands of people because of their disobedience to God. But outside of that, they didn't lose battles because God was with them. The only time they lost a battle was when they were disobedient to God. And you know, we're the same way as Christians. When we follow God and we're obedient to God, we are victorious. When we commit sin and, and we're against God and we're doing things that are wrong, we will be defeated. And we want to we be very careful. 
listen for God, <laughs> obey God's voice. Because if you go out and do things that he doesn't want you to do, he will let us fall flat on our face. <laughs> when we are serving him, we will be victorious. And it is amazing what God's people accomplish when they're following him and obeying him. And it's amazing how great the fall is when, you when you're doing things he doesn't want you to do. And you get to fall flat on your face and everybody gets to look at you and say, wow, what, what did you do? How did, how did you end up here? But, Good question. Um, obviously that gene and all of these giants, these big people, died out somewhere along the line. It, most of them seem to have died here if they were only in that area. Um, and it's questionable where, where all these giants have gone. Uh, there's always people who are taller than everybody else in their, in their group. Saul was chosen because he was head and shoulders, you know, his head stood up above everybody else. So for all practical purpose, he might have been considered a giant among the Israelites. Uh, some of our founding fathers were the same. You got the same description of them. They stood taller than everybody else. Um, this, this is way back. This is way back. Um, maybe God created us that, that big, and, it's, and we've kind of dwindled in size over the years. Uh, there is also the idea that there was food was plenteous at this time, and that tends to bring people as a larger larger stature. Uh, for years the people were getting shorter and shorter and then in our day people are getting taller. You know, it's not just America but all across the world people are getting taller. Six foot is now pretty standard out there but we've got basketball players that are pushing eight, eight feet, you know, eight and a half feet. We're starting to see maybe the trend going back the other way. Could it be because of nutrition? Could it be because of the end times? Could it be because of sin? There's all kinds of variables that might be out there for it. We don't know what happened to them. God allowed these giants, and I believe that he allowed them to, to fill that area so that his people would know that it was him who was their victory. That is my belief on this. He allowed the giants there so that they would be afraid and they would know that it was him that brought victory over these big giants. I know it was a few years down the road, but I don't believe David ever thought he killed Goliath by himself. Oh no, he never. He always knew it was God. He knew God. But that was his child. That was his claim all the way, to, all the way from the beginning. Right. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that's defying the God of our God? You know, which he always knew it was God, and he was. He didn't understand why anybody would let somebody defy God much less God. But. So I kind of believe, and this is just my opinion, that you know, this was something that God allowed to happen in that area so that he would get the victory, he would get the glory when they won the battles. And that whole area is full of, full of giants, or was full of giants. And it says the whole na the world, the, all the nations are going to hear about what I am doing for you, and they're going to be afraid. It's very hard for a fight bravely when they're terrified to begin with. If you remember the story of Gideon and his 300, you know, Gideon was going to, you know, praying to God, basically saying, God, you know, uh, without saying it quite this way, God, you're kind of insane. We are going to send us with 300 people to fight the, these 
this hundred thousand or what you know close to a hundred thousand and God says go down to the camp and, and hear what they're saying and they were having dreams about Gideon and, and were terrified of Gideon and God and it really encouraged Gideon that says oh okay these guys are totally afraid you know and that terror was in every bit of that battle and when they broke the broke the jars and blew the horns and all of a sudden flames are all around you know torches around them uh, 300 trumpets are being blown all around them and they go into a panic and start killing each other that you know who would come up with a battle plan like that but God you know who would come up with a battle plan to conquer a city by marching around it for seven days now, can you imagine being the soldier and say, okay, here's our battle plan. We're going to go march around the city to, you know, for the next, next six days, and then we're going to march around it seven days. And by the way, you're not to say a word while we march around. That was probably very wise, because can you imagine the grumbling and complaining that would be? You know, especially about the third or fourth, fifth day. We're marching around this stupid city and nothing's happening. You know they would have been doing it. They grumbled all the time when Moses was bringing them through when they had all kinds of blessings. You know that they would have been grumbling. And then the last day they were told you're going to march around this huge city seven times. Yeah. And we're talking a very large city. It would have taken them all day pretty much to walk around it seven times. And then they were to yell and blow the horns. And the city fell. Can you imagine, though, how much of a test of faith that is? What do you mean the city fell? The walls fell. Oh. Jericho. Jericho, the yeah. walls fell on Jericho. Oh. God has had many of these really strange ways of winning battles. Mm -hmm. uh, Sisera ran from the battle, and the woman got him, had him, gave him warm milk after a long exerted day, and he fell asleep, and she drove a ten, uh, ten stake through his through his temple and, and nailed his head to the ground. You know, pretty, pretty uh, gruesome thing. You know, all these things the judges did to deliver Israel. And you know, when we get to Judges, it, it's quite a story to read when you think of Judges. You know, all these things that God did to deliver his people because they had fallen into sin and were being judged. And when they repented, he turned, he turned and rescued them. And this is why today, if this country and, and many of the world would just turn and repent, God would rescue our countries. I think we're close enough to the end days that I don't expect a large revival of the world. Because I think we're right there at the end days. God did say that the generation that saw Israel come back into a, a country would not pass. So we're getting pretty close to the last ones getting up to age. So I do not believe that we have 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. I don't think we have more than a couple decades at most. Uh, How long you, would you think? Huh? How long would you think for this generation? Well, the generation in the Bible usually was 40 years, but we're well past the 40 years. That's why in 88, everybody got, most Christians got excited. It was going to be the, the rapture. Jesus was returning because it was 40 years. Uh, but a generation can also be defined for the last living person. So when the last person who was born in 1948 was ready to die, 
then that would be the generation won't pass. So anybody who's 48, if they live to be 100, that's 2048. You know, how many of them will live to be 100? I don't know, but 2048 would be 100 years. And that's why I'm saying it's all defined by when the last person who was born in 48, when, when they became a nation, is to pass away. That would be the longest possible time because God said that this generation will not pass. Say they lived to be 120, so it would be a 2068. You know, it's living past 120. I don't know. That would be pretty far-fetched. But so we are close to the end because there's these certain time markers in. Can I predict exactly when? No. Nobody can predict when because Jesus said that nobody knows the day and time except the Father. Satan doesn't know the day or time, which is one of the reasons he has to have bad people ready to become the Antichrist on hand just in case. Just in case the rapture comes so he can engage the next, the next Antichrist. So we're seeing all of this. We're seeing that we're close. We're seeing, as we've talked about when we did the Revelation class, we are basically at a cashless society already. You know, for all practical purposes, yes, there's a couple holdouts that still use cash. Yeah. Uh, I use it, cash. Yeah. yeah. But most of, it, most of us, myself included, use a debit card and, and rarely touch any cash. Uh, we use checks, debit cards, and, and credit cards. Bills, I don't have much cash. But, so we're technically pretty much right there at a cashless society, and it, wouldn't, it would not be a big... Uh, inconvenience if the government said we're not printing up cash anymore you get to you use your debit cards because almost everybody has a debit card available to them if not they will the government will make sure that you have a debit card available to you the gas stations prefer cash or they'll even give you a discount for cash yeah but they have these things now that can uh, steal your ID from the gas pumps so I don't use my debit card at the gas pumps anymore oh, you're so paranoid that's right. That's why I've never been ripped off by. <laughs> I've never, I've never been ripped off either, and I'm not paranoid about it. I'm not paranoid, but I get all these reports. You know, because I work for, I get reports from the government for this stuff. So, but, but anyway, all of this stuff is starting to become a reality. We're right on the brink of having the economy fall apart completely, and that is true. All economists say that. Okay, it just will take one bad event, and our economy worldwide will crash. We are right there. We are we are right at the problems of the end times. So I don't think we're long, and this is one of the reasons I don't really believe that we're going to have a great revival that brings about a true repentance and, and, and because when we see that we see it like the children of Israel when they would they would fall they would repent God would give them a judge that judge would rule for their lifetime it would take them a few about another 20 or 30 years and they would start doing what was right in their own eye and, and fall again and so that means if we were to have a great repentance right now and a great revival that God would be held off for several decades and I just don't see that being an option at this moment because we're too close it's just too close I'd love to see it I'd love to be wrong there was a great revival that started here 
There's been two great revivals in America. We had a great revival in the late 1600s, spanning into the 1700s. Then we had a revival in the 1800s. And we've had some small, we had a small revival in the, in the 1900s when the Jesus movement came, came out of that. But it wasn't a very big one. It really was not like the two great revivals. The two great revivals changed this country tremendously, especially the second one. The second one was so great that bars closed, brothels closed, not because there were laws made against, against those things, not because laws were made against them, but because so many people were getting saved that either the owners got saved and closed them down, or so many people got saved that there wasn't enough business to keep them functioning. Okay. The Jesus movement never really reached that kind of impact. Now, it had a great impact, especially on the West Coast and throughout the South, but it never had the huge impact that totally changed our nation like the other ones did. And I was in the South, so I just was, and because of California, yeah. I just assumed it was countrywide. No, it, it didn't really sweep. It, I mean, it, it had effects everywhere, but not anything like California and the Southern southern states but I would love to see a revival I just don't think it's going to happen with our with certain things that have happened and where we're at I just don't see it happen God says I'm going to bring ter terror upon the people verse 26 and I sent messengers out into the wilderness of Kedesh Kedemoth unto Sihon king of Heshbon with words of peace saying let me pass through your land and I will go along by the highway I will neither turn into the right hand or to the left. You shall sell me meat for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only I will pass through on my feet. So he's asked them the same thing he's asked the other individuals. Okay, let us just pass through. We'll pay you for anything we eat and drink, and we'll stay on the roads. And this verse 29, as the children of Esau that which dwell in Sire and the Moabites which dwell in Arn did unto me, until I pass over Jordan, which is the land that the Lord God has given us. So he's saying, we just want to go through your land, we're, we're going across the Jordan. Alright? And he's saying, these other people have allowed us to just pass through, we've paid for everything that we've, we've gone. Now Moses already knows that the answer is going to be no, because God has told them to conquer. Okay. He says, you're going, to, you're going to destroy them. You are going to meddle with them. You are going to fight with them. And verse 23 says, But Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into our, my, your hand as appears this day. And you see here, God hardened his heart. Just like, Pharaoh. Just like Pharaoh. When God is wanting to be glorified and he wants to make his point, he will harden the hearts. He will make people not respond. And being obstinate, being, being very harsh. And so here we are. He says, God hardened Sion's heart. That was something we didn't read in, in, in Numbers, but here Moses is saying his heart was hardened. God had already told Moses that they were going to conquer this, this land, so he had, the king had to say no. Because when Moses sent the, the messengers there, if he had said yes, 
all he would have done is walk through and God's word would not have the God's word that he gave to Moses would not have been fulfilled because they wouldn't have fought him because he would have said yes to letting them through so here God is saying I'm going to make sure that you get to fight him his evil has come before me and I'm going to let this battle happen Verse 31, And the Lord said, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land before you begin to possess, that you may inherit his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jahaz. So he brought his entire military force to go to war with the Israelites. Now this is going to be, there's a two-part thing on this because Remember, the people do remember God destroying Egypt. All right? They still remember that, but that's 40 years ago, or 39 years ago at this point. 39 years ago, God destroyed Israel. They've had victories in the wilderness, but nothing as, as great as the Egyptian and what's coming when they come into the land. The king Zion is, Zion is going to be their first great attack in battle in a long time. And they're going to defeat them. Zion is a strong opponent. And when God defeats him, the people of Canaan are going to look on and say, okay, their God is still at work for them. They've been wandering around for 40 years. They got lost somehow, but their God is still strong. Their God is still defending them because they should not be able to defeat this army that they're, they're going to defeat. Or if they did defeat them, it shouldn't be as easy as it appears to be in one battle. All right? And so verse 33, And the Lord our God delivered him before us, and we smote him and his sons and all his people. We took all his cities at that time, and we utterly destroyed the women, uh, the men and the women and the little ones, and every city we left none to remain. Only the cattle took we as prayed for ourselves, and the spoils of the cities we took. This is a complete, utter defeat of this the land of the Amorites. They killed every living soul in that land. Same thing they're going to be told to do in Canaan. And again, we know that Canaan was, was judged because of their sinfulness, especially sexual sinfulness. And here they were sent into the Amorites and they were given victory over the king. And then it says, his sons and all of his people. And then it says they killed everybody. Men, women, and children. They kept only the cattle and the, the spoils of the city. And so now they've got their first set of cities that is going to be theirs to keep. And we already know the Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are going to ask to stay on that side of the Jordan. We have this great victory that's going to resound in this area because there's this idea that they've been wandering something's wrong they've lost the power of their God's lost power he couldn't give them victory coming in and now all of a sudden they're seeing a victorious people again and fear is going to come on them because now they've got the Amorites who have been destroyed and they remember Egypt being destroyed 
And so there's terror in there. And this is, the, this is what we always want to remember. So often, the enemy is more afraid of us in the spiritual world than we are of them. It's amazing. If you ever start really doing evangelism and, and witnessing to people, people are more afraid to talk to you than you are of them, and we're sometimes terrified to talk to them. But, you know, they're also ready to hear God it prepares hearts out there. If we just open our mouths, people's hearts have been prepared to be spoken to. And they are ready to hear. They may not be ready to answer, but they're ready to hear. And God has given us great victory. He's given people that look at us and say, I want what you want. If only we would open our mouths and share the gospel. It's a very amazing thing to open up and share and be bold be courageous <laughs> too many times we're timid and shy and the people are waiting to hear the gospel and they're just waiting for somebody to say this is the gospel and there are those who have heard it a hundred times and don't don't believe it but there's also people who are ready and you know it, it is really fun when you talk to somebody who is ready to hear the gospel and they just kind of fall down like a house of cards and, and pray the prayer and, and ask God into their heart and get saved and, and their life has changed. You know, and it's a pleasure to be able to have shared the gospel with them and watch them respond. So we, I just want to challenge us. It's don't be afraid of people out there. We've got the Holy Spirit. And if you just let the Holy Spirit talk through you, you're, gonna, you're going to get them convicted at the very least that they need to know God even if they don't respond at that time. The Holy Spirit will fill your mouth. I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed to somebody and I literally have been kind of stepped back in my mind listening to what I'm saying, knowing that it's no longer me saying it, that the Holy Spirit is speaking. And it's only my voice that's being used and my vocal cords being used by the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing when it happens that God uses you and, and talks through you. Because he told the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say on the courts. The Spirit will give you the words to say. And it's amazing when you read their, their testimony, you know, Stephen's defense of the gospel to the people that made him so angry that they stoned him. You know, so we've got all of that that goes on Verse 36, from Aor, which is by the brink of the river Arnon, and from the city that is by the river, even to Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all unto us. Only into the hand of the children of Ammon come you came not, nor into the place of the river Jabrook, nor into the city in the mountains, nor unto what... Soever the Lord our God forbade us. So he's saying we didn't go to the places God didn't allow us, but everywhere that he allowed us to go, we had victory. Mm -hmm. God gives victory. And it is fun to see the victories in your life. And you need to be looking at where are the victories that God has given you. Mark them. Write them down. Remember them so that you know when Satan attacks you and gets you down, you can look back and say, no, Satan, God delivered me here, 
he helped me here, he helped me here, and if he helped me in all those places, and he helped all the people in the Bible, he will help me in the future. And this is why I say, get to know your Bible, get to know how God has helped his, his people. Get to know biographies of different men of God and missionaries and, and so that you will know how God helped them. Read about uh, Mueller, the prayer warrior, and, and, and uh, Brother Andrew, and Annie's favorite in the, in the hiding place, uh, you know, the, the, that family. All these different people that are out there the, that God has delivered. Get to know their stories and also mark your story and say, this is where God's delivered me. Share with everybody where God has so that you're encouraging them. This is what God's done for me. This is where he's given me victory. Because it's one thing to know that the Bible is true and God helped people thousands of years ago. You read the biographies and you say, okay, God, yeah, you did. You helped these people a couple hundred years ago. That's still good information. But when we look and say, this is where God helped me, and this is where he helped others that I know, it's now today, present tense. He's still helping people, just as he said he would. So between the three, what he did 2,000 years ago, what he did a couple hundred years ago, and what he's doing today, you should be able to be very bold with God and not buy into Satan's lies that God has abandoned us. And this is very important that we don't buy into those because so often we get ourselves depressed. We just think that, well, you know, God helped all the people in the Bible, but who am, you know, and usually it goes, well, who am I? I'm a nobody. We're saints of God. We are perfect in his sight. We are his saints. We are his people. God will deliver us because he said he will take care of us because we are special to him. We are not nobodies that Satan tries to convince us of. We are sinners, but yet at the same time, we are saints. We are made righteous. God sees us as perfect. We may sin, but God says, you're still my children. I'm going to embrace you. I am going to deliver you. I am going to do great things in your life. And we need to be able to come up and when Satan attacks us and says, you're nothing but a loser. You're worthless. God doesn't care about you. We go, oh, God cares about me. He's done this, this, and this. And, I, and he's done this, this, and this for my friends. And he's done this, this, and this over the last couple hundred years. And he's done these things for the, for the Bible characters. And you encourage yourself with what he is doing. And you be able to say, Satan, you're nothing but a liar. I am not worthless. God thinks I am worth extreme value. We're, we're so valuable to God that he died for us. He paid that price so that we could be his children. And as we've talked about, God himself felt the pain of his son becoming sin. He felt pain as well in this salvation effort for us. He loves us that much. How can we ever believe that we are worthless? Not even thinking about all that he's done for us. You know, how many times has he helped you pay bills? How many times has he healed you? How many times has he protected you? How many times should you be dead and you're not? How many times has there been a, a miracle in your life that God has done something in your life? Mark, mark those times. Put, put up markers in there that says, 
this is what God has done. Landmarks. Landmarks on what God has done in your life. Know the landmarks of the people around you so that you can say, God, you, you know, it may be a long time since you've done, that I can think of anything that you've done for me, but you've done something for, you know, Annie, Jesse, Amy. We, we look at, we look at all these things and say, God, you're, you are great. You are great. And God wants to bless us more than we can ever imagine that he wants to bless us and more than we will allow him to bless us. He wants to bless us greatly. Now, sometimes his blessings come in things that look like pain, <laughs> but there's still blessings in the long run. We learn from them. We get prepared for the next trial in our life. They get to be a testimony of how God is glorified as he delivers us. So we want to be ready for this. We want to put in this. We do not want to let Satan convince us that we are worthless. I've met too many people that Satan is convinced that they are worthless, that are Christians, supposedly Christians, and can't see anything good that God has ever done for them. And all they've done is buy into the lies of Satan, that nothing as good has ever happened. And we need to mark those good things and say, this is what God has done. I love what God has done in my life over the last, last especially the last three years as he's provided for us in miraculous ways as as we needed bills paid and things taken care of and watched God just give blessings one after the another and see his hand at work. I hold those, I treasure those because I may need to keep that in remembrance that God has done that in, the, in, in sometime in the future. And then when, God, when Satan attacks in some other area and says, oh, you're just worthless, you don't, you're not getting anything accomplished and all these things, I can say, no, Satan, God, is, God has got me. He's got a plan. We need that ability to be able to say, I am God's child, and he's got a plan for me, and I am going to stand within that plan and look at all these things he's done for me. Because it is too easy to get yourself lost in, in, in the bad things that are happening in your life. Very easy. Very easy to say, well, you know, I've got these sicknesses. I'm... I'm not healthy anymore. My kids, my kids haven't followed God. Uh, you know, I lost my job, God. How are you gonna? How am I gonna live? All these things that we could get wrapped up in, and God saying, "You are special. You are special. Watch me work." And always remember that God, when the, when we think that all things are bad, God hasn't closed the accounting books yet. He doesn't. He doesn't close those books until they're standing in heaven. Mm -hmm. Who knows when that child that you want to get saved might get saved. Might be on their deathbed. It might be before that. It might be before your deathbed. But God does not close the books until he is done. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to serve you. We ask that you go with us. Help us to... Learn to trust you in facing our giants in our life, that you are a victorious one, that you give the strength, that you give the victory. Help us to mark our victories so that we will be able to see them into the future and understand and remember them. And we ask you to go with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.